Самару Ты душа любезный Совсем не под пару Ты цветочка кроза Родного Кавказа Well, hello and welcome to Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. If you've been listening for a while, you know very well that the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And you generous patrons out there who go to your wallets and or go to your credit cards and give us monthly contributions to help us keep this podcast going and to make it sound good and do a bunch of new things. So if you are interested, if you like the show and you want to let us know how much you value it, please take a moment Put your money where your listening is and go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash you're a not and become a monthly patron. It's important to us to know that you're willing to invest into this show. Okay, so Rusana, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, recovering from yet another virus brought from a birthday party. <laughs> yes, having a small child is, as many of us know who've gone through that experience, they tend to bring a lot of disease home. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. No more social events for me. <laughs> exactly. Even listeners might hear uh, Nikolai in the background. So that's the reality, right? Yes, the, the youngest podcaster of all time. Right on. Yes. <laughs> Maybe he has a future. Who knows? So anyways, in this interview, we are checking in with Brian Milikovsky. If you've been a longtime listener, you know that we've interviewed Brian a number of times about Ukraine and specifically get an update from him on what's going on the war and how he sees things. This is Brian's fifth time on the podcast. So he is a very valuable, repeated guest. And you know, what's interesting too, it's good that we're turning some attention to Ukraine because, you know, one of the things I noticed, Rusana, for a long time, especially as we're coming up to the second year anniversary of the war, Ukraine, at least in the American press, has really fallen off the headlines. I mean, it used to be the top story in the Washington Post and the New York Times every single day. It was, it was really unprecedented, I have to say. But in the last couple of months, it, particularly you know, at the start of the Gaza War, Ukraine has fallen. What are your kind of observations about this, almost a normalization of the war in Ukraine? With regards to the news, the news anchors are probably just as burnt out as we are like following a horrendous conflict for t almost like two years is a pretty intense task. And I myself felt like at some point I just couldn't follow it anymore. And I mentioned that in the interview later. And I mean, the same thing is kind of happening with Palestine-Israel war. It's like when you're not directly involved, when you're not directly impacted, there's only so much attention and energy that you can give to a particular issue, given that you have like other things going on in your life. So I feel like the fact that it's fallen off the headlines signals to the fact that people are maybe, yeah, people are burnt out. And perhaps it also is signaling us that the political climate in the States is also changing, that perhaps the establishment is reconsidering how much support they're willing to give to Ukraine, given the stalled counteroffensive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God bless the people who are following it, who aren't, as you said, directly, you know, impacted those observers. Yeah, and Brian is one of them, right? Yeah, Brian is definitely one of them. He's so involved and dedicated. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we felt like it was so important to kind of make this conscientious effort and have another conversation about this ongoing conflict. Yeah, definitely. And, and I really appreciate his perspective. He's very good with the nuances and the complexities of the situation. Something, of course, you don't often get from reading about it in the press or certainly from social media. So why don't we move on and get Brian on the air? Let's turn to the interview. Why don't you introduce Brian for us? Brian Milikovsky has worked in forest conservation in Russia and Ukraine from 2009 to 2015, and then in economic recovery and international projects in Ukraine. He was based in Severodonetsk in eastern Ukraine, but moved to Latvia with his family after Russia's second invasion. He writes about socioeconomics of Ukraine for publications like Foreign Affairs, The Garden, Open Democracy, and The Wilson Institute. Here's Brian Milakovsky. Hello, 
Well, Brian, this is the fifth time you've been on the podcast. You've been on more than anyone else. So you are a very well-regarded returning guest. I was checking to see the last time we talked and we talked the summer of 2022 in July. So why don't you update us and the listeners on what you've been up to and what are some of the things you're seeing around the Ukraine war? Thanks again for having me, Sean and Grisana. And it is, it's really great to be able to join you so often. I'm not very often a published person, so I really appreciate having four hour. I can share some of what I'm seeing, what comes out of my work and my general submersion in events around Ukraine for quite a few years now. Since our last discussion, I remain actually Latvia based, although I work full time on Ukraine, both in the development sector and sort of as an observer and occasional writer. We have mostly been out since the war began, so I want to make that caveat at the very beginning. There's some people who can speak to what it feels like to be in, in Kyiv or Kharkiv during all of this, and that's not me right now. But I do work with and consume, well, I work with a lot of folks on the ground right now who are both volunteers, the kind of people out sort of constantly filling the needs of either humanitarian missions or uh, increasingly Ukrainian soldiers. And I work with a lot of business analysts and small business people through my, my work in international development programs. And like I think most people both in place and those of us who are abroad and just sort of constantly simmering in Ukrainian social media, trying to keep up with uh, what's happening in this war and in the crazy diplomacy and commentary around it. So I remain a mostly a development worker, now expat for, out of Ukraine, unfortunately, for family reasons. We've got a, a young daughter, and so that's what keeps me out of the country most of the time. But I've been both getting deeper and deeper into the upcoming, we don't know when it will begin, Ukrainian recovery process through my development work. I've also been trying to follow what on earth is happening in the communities that I worked in and lived in for six years in Luhansk Oblast in Eastern Ukraine, which, you know, sort of fell behind the curtain in the first days of the war. We spoke about that a bit the last time I was on and the longer they remain occupied the more it's sort of through the looking glass, trying to understand what's become of these places that are the homeland of my wife and her family and a place that I became very attached to over six years. That's a very strange experience, sort of seeing that mostly on Telegram, increasingly strange, I would say dystopian snippets of two years into this new kind of Russian occupation. It's even different, I'd say, the, the 2014 to 2021 occupation. So sorry, that was a not very nutshell summary of what I've been up to since our last interview. Brian, I, I'm curious, as someone like yourself who is really up to your neck in this information, and, and granted, I know you have family connections now for this. It's not abstract for you. But nonetheless, how do you maintain your kind of psychological fortitude given all of this and just not completely burning out and wanting to just run away? Well, I spread my interests around a lot of different aspects of what's going on. But I, as many people who are sort of permanently plugged in watching this conflict, I mean, you do every so often just hurl the phone away. I really don't know what people who are there and actually submerged in it personally. There's lots of people who could speak to that. I think it's very different, possibly in some ways. I won't even try to speak to, to the way it feels for them. But I spread around and try to follow a lot of different things. So I'm actually a forester and a forest ecologist by education and still have worked on that some in, in Ukraine, worked on it a lot when I lived in Russia for many years. And I've focused on that a bit because that allows me to consume more information and in a way that's close to my specialization and professionally instead of sort of emotionally or in this weird, I'm an observer, I'm going to try to write about this and tell other people about it, which is nonetheless an extremely emotional thing at the end of the day. Whereas I'm in a group of people who monitor forest damage from the war using satellite images and an extraordinary amount of cell phone cam footage that's uploaded every day. And it's also thoroughly depressing, but also incredibly fascinating. 
and I'm working on scientific papers about this. I mean, we try to publish in popular press as well. So things like that give me an outlet to follow and also create some new useful metric for people to understand what the war is doing. All of these metrics are deeply depressing and distressing, but they're important. And that helps. So that's one thing I do. While then sometimes from the same channels, I'm also oh, seeing the latest wave of absolutely off the charts, crazy brainwashing propagandization of children in the occupied territories, which is not something I can keep up with at the same level that I do of, of collecting videos of bombed out forests because I can't handle that emotionally, but I give it a certain amount of my bandwidth. And then I jump into analytics of domestic manufacturers in Ukraine and their ability to take part in the reconstruction, which is part of my job. I think that's the answer is I have these different silos for working on Ukraine that trigger different parts of my brain. I have a follow-up question. You mentioned the destruction of forests and kind of the environmental damage that's been done because of the war and also your work on the recovery process for Ukraine. And I wonder, do these calculations for what it takes to recover from the war, do they take the environmental damage into consideration? And could you tell us more about what the recovery process would look like and what exactly is being measured and what is the focus here? Yeah, certainly. There's quite an impressive effort right now to quantify the ecological damages accrued from Russia's invasion. There's an entire team. There's a Dutch expert named Leonard de Klerk, who's led that together with a bunch of Ukrainian experts. And I mean, they've looked at everything climate related from the direct destruction, like this many hectares, this many tens of thousands of hectares have burned to the ground and released their stored carbon into the atmosphere to this many old Soviet apartment blocks have been wrecked and we're going to need to create this many emissions to create the new concrete and steel that's going to go into their construction. And if we used timber instead, we would reduce it by this much all the way to, I mean, it's fascinating. They looked at like, well, because Ukraine and Russia became no fly zones for a lot of major airlines, they're doing these huge roundabouts around that massive landmass. And that's all this, all these jets spewing that much more emissions into the atmosphere. I mean, they're really trying to capture it partially because they're trying to put some, you know, I mean, carbon is now a monetized thing in the world and quite appropriately, they're looking for ways to make Russia pay for the climate destruction. It's reeking through this war. So there's an attempt to capture that. It all gets down to, okay, when we quantify it, are we then able to turn that into justice? That's an enormous question that leads to, will we ever have enough leverage to make Russia pay for what it's doing, which is a much bigger question, but there's definitely an attempt to work that into the calculations. We're very much right now on the threshold of, is it possible to extract things from the Russian Federation to make them cover at least a part of the massive damages they're accruing to Ukraine? I think you've probably seen in the news, this isn't something I can speak to as an expert. I'm reading the same headlines as everyone else, you know, but the the Western countries are really hoping to start using assets seized on their territory from Russian owners to compensate because otherwise we are looking at a recovery that will have a major and an extraordinary component of grant funding from the West. And we need to acknowledge already that, for instance, the EU right now is just doing an enormous amount of funding that it will never return just to keep Ukraine's basic welfare state functioning. Right. Like Ukraine covers 100% its military expenditures itself, although, of course, it's also getting arms. But other huge aspects of its welfare state are being covered by Western partners. So I want to say that at the very beginning, because another major aspect of how the recovery is going to be financed inevitably is debt. Ukraine's economy is ravaged, as I think we've few times seen to this extent and in such diverse ways, because Russia is deliberately using economic warfare alongside its destruction. And this war is getting pushed out farther and farther. And even very generous partners turn eventually to credits rather than gifts to help fund an effort like that. And 
there's a massive question, you know, is this feasible for Ukraine to carry such a massive debt on the shoulders of its ravaged economy with millions of people abroad? Will they return to become cogs in the economy that start getting that GDP cranking again? Or will they look at many less public services, a physically ravaged country, and now it's servicing massive debt and say, well, you know, I've already got a job in Poland or the Czech Republic. And so there is a very big worry among some of us in the recovery community, especially who might come to this from a bit of a social democracy part of the spectrum. Do we have a sustainable model whereby Ukraine can rebuild itself? And one of the themes I've worked with a lot is if you're going to have a debt-driven recovery, Ukraine should spend that money in its domestic economy to the absolute maximum extent. And that means using the recovery loans to stimulate its own industries, which exist, to insource its own recovery. So that's a major professional theme for me right now, and one that I... That I trying to at least create some analytical progress. Basically, I wanted to go back to the question about freezing conflict and stalemate. And I've been hearing from the news, there's been a lot of talk in the press about the Ukraine reaching a stalemate and that the counteroffensive wasn't as successful as the Western powers have hoped, you know, by providing all the support that they had. Yeah, Brian, so what are some of your impressions of where things stand today? Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, the million-dollar question. T to sort of maybe start with a couple of big themes, I think there's been a real struggle, and it didn't begin in February 2022, to have a policy of support for Ukraine from the West in which the will and means match the rhetoric. It's a fairly banal observation, but it really is true that there have been an, a series of narratives, sort of positionings of Ukraine's struggle amongst Western partners that are generally maximally ideologically comfortable for us, but which would naturally be followed up by levels of support that despite the unprecedented historical levels of support since February 2022 have never matched the rhetoric. And that suggests we either for a long time, and I, I would extend this back, for instance, into it, to a certain extent back into what I sort of call the mid-period, right? The frozen first war, when we had this long dragged out, ultimately futile, bizarre negotiations process in which things were not being directly negotiated. They were being negotiated through this strange shadow play about these imaginary people's republics in the Donbass. That's a big topic. I've talked about it with Sean several times before, so I'll try not to get dragged back into that. But I think we could extend back into that period definitely now during the big hot war since February 2022 and say, okay, either scale back the rhetoric and positioning to what you're prepared to actually do because rhetoric has impact against a deeply ideological opponent like the Russian Federation. Ideology matters in the Russian Federation, it mobilizes, it is weaponized, right? It is everything, but it, it matters and rhetoric affects it. So either scale back your rhetoric or walk your walk, right? As you're talking your talk. And there's just been this perpetual disalignment. And of course, also the rhetoric also works on Ukrainians. It builds expectations. So that's been distressing to watch for many years. And I think as we get into this situation now, here's another theme that I think about a lot. There are sort of the realists, the look, this should have been ended with negotiations as fast as possible crowd um, for whom I have time because if we are not prepared to do what it takes for a more conclusive victory, then that brings us to negotiation. But there's also, I think there are agendas behind those calls as well. There are people who would just like to see egg on the face of the United States and have another case study of our hubris 
very casually eliminates from our calculations what it means at this stage if we go into the kind of negotiations that the Russian Federation wants right now, which are we begin with all of our conquered areas remain in our hands. And I'm not using that word lightly. It was very recently used by Vladimir Putin in another one of these mask falling moments where he stopped saying liberated and used um, atvayovanly, which is just, there's no way to translate that basically, except what we have, what we fought and won, what we've conquered. But at the same time, there's almost just an automatic, if Ukraine's cause is just, then we don't want to hear about negotiations with these madmen. And again, it's just about this misalignment of our positioning and our rhetoric. I am perhaps much more ideologically flexible than I used to be in that I believe actually there's probably a level of Western resolve and arming of Ukraine that actually would let it thrash the Russian Federation on the battlefield. And I think we could go that route. But again, if we're not going to, then we need to create the ideological space to find the most tolerable lousy peace that we can achieve. I mean, lousy peace has sort of been a theme that's run through my understanding since 2014 of that whole problem. So sorry, those are like some big themes to begin with when you say, where are we right now? Let me ask you about this notion of yours of the lousy piece that you've been ruminating for many years now, because you know, we are, along with you know what Rusana asked about the talk of a stalemate and the falling short of the counteroffensive, and there was a lot of rhetoric in the buildup to Ukraine's counteroffensive that inflated the expectations. It's fair to say, going back to this disconnect that you've mentioned, we were also now hearing a lot more about negotiations and the inevitability of negotiations and who is ready for negotiations and who isn't ready for negotiations. And then, of course, there's the revisiting the 2022 negotiations, which I find is an strange exercise because, well, they didn't work. So, you know, why, <laughs> why rehash that? It didn't happen. So let's move on. But talk about this prospect of negotiations I'm not asking you to tell us when will there be negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. What will they look like? But talk about your notion of the lousy peace in relationship to this possibility. So I think when we see a lousy peace as one of the ways this can end, a lousy peace as opposed to this is the new Chamberlain moment when the modern Czechoslovakia will be betrayed, which I actually don't think is such a fruity metaphor here. I know that's one sort of perpetually cringe-inducing for people, but actually think that there are parallels here, or we don't have the incredible victory that we would all emotionally love to see, we have this lousy peace. And to envision what it might look like, I, for instance, think it's very important for us to really touch down on the ground and understand what different variations might look like. And partially help ourselves morally understand, wow, would a variation like that be at all acceptable compared to that kind of on the ground reality that, you know, I was trying to pass on a little bit earlier that I would sometimes hear from volunteers that, wow, we do not appreciate the human cost. Another case I would use, I do some media monitoring about what's going on with the grain export crisis on the border. It means that I spend a lot of time looking at local media for the Odessa region, interestingly enough, and the drip, drip, drip of obituaries from these little rural communities down in that part of Ukraine, Bessarabia, which is just a really, a really intense part of the country, very, very multi-ethnic and complex and always one of the more ambiguous parts of the country, but now just actually being sort of extraordinarily engaged in this struggle. And these little rural consolidated communities, Kromadas, the new organizational unit of Ukraine, you begin to feel it when you subject yourself every day to looking at a, a little case like this. A lot of people are dying trying to hold back the Russian war machine. And so... Let's take that into consideration and let's take into consideration what it means to let the Russian war machine take home its spoils. 
because there are different variations. The 2022 negotiations that didn't work, and we can get into that. It's an extremely complicated topic. I can try to speak to it lightly, but what they theoretically were getting towards was what was being discussed was a, let's go back to the February 24th, 2022 line. And if that had really been sort of locked into place by an actual peace deal, instead of just that was the battlefront reality since 2014, that Ukraine could not control the cities of Donetsk, Luhansk, some of their satellite towns in the Donbass and all of Crimea. If that had really been locked in a written agreement between heads of state, we would have to understand that many people who remain there and have been waiting all these years to return to Ukrainian sovereignty would probably see that sunset forever. And that includes, for instance, the Crimean Tatars, who are as a community, not just as individuals, as a community extraordinarily victimized by the Russian Federation in a systematic and sadistic way that's just taking apart their community. We also would need to understand that if we got all the way to an extraordinary Ukrainian victory and they rolled into especially some of the most battle-scarred from the last war communities that have been occupied by Russia since 2014, it would not be easy to reintegrate. There would be enormous numbers of people alienated from the government as well as those who were waiting for them. So the idea, go back to February 22nd, right? 2022 would have certain, and, and if that was locked in place by an agreement, that would have certain consequences for some people, enormous ones. It would also leave untouched one of the most difficult questions in front of Ukraine, which is reintegration of the so-called People's Republic. So the Donbass, which I've been studying for eight years and is just almost too complex to, to express. If Russia gets its way right now, if we say, okay, you know what, there isn't enough Western resolve, we're going to try to freeze the conflict. Russia gets some more pieces of Eastern and Southern Ukraine. It's not the same exact thing that it has now got. It is a different territory with a different ideological balance. And quite simply, Russia will be able to control some territories. Absolutely demonstrated unambiguously their disgust with the Russian imperial project. If in the Donbass there was an indigenous core that was ready to participate. It was absolutely not everyone, but it was also enough people to create an incredible challenge to Ukraine for reintegration. And those people were traumatized in the war and have their, their scars, psychological and otherwise. When we look at, for instance, Southern Ukraine, the Kherson and Zaporizhia areas that are occupied. It's just been an extraordinary fiasco for Russia. And then as we move east into the territories where I was working and living the last six years, it's somewhere in the middle. It's almost maybe a finely balanced between them experiencing extraordinary social protest when they first moved in to occupy. But also, you know, now two years in, I could certainly see that many people there have also reconciled themselves, perhaps happily, to living in that. So if we say negotiations that brought us back to the 2022 line or negotiations that freeze in place Russia's conquered territories, now those are very different human costs. Do you also fear, like, is it possible, I should say, that going back to this disconnect with the rhetoric and reality and also the th many of the things you just outlined of the complexities of the configurations on the ground is another possibility of the lousy piece is the question for the Ukrainian public and officials to ask, what was all this for? What did we lose all of this for if we're going to just freeze this, let's say, freeze it where it is? What did we fight for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's inevitable and unavoidable when a society has been mobilized in the most literal way possible as Ukraine had to, for a lot of people not to reach an ideological place where look what these monsters have done to us. And when you stop and look, when you look at the number of children they took into their own territory and look at the, what they're doing to just absolutely reform the minds of children in the occupied territories. It's very easy for me to get to that same emotional place. 
then I have to walk myself back from it just to say, am I going to end up there if I try to really hash out all the scenarios? And it's almost inevitable that people got there, but it's also then when they reach a bubble bursting moment, for instance, when they begin to understand what the American Republican party is capable of, it's again, it's quite traumatic. There was a very dark moment at the end of last year that I think is maybe people are coming through it a bit simply because again, the Ukrainian army is extraordinarily resilient and through its incredibly creative use of drones, it's making up for not having enough artillery and is holding off any, any major breakthroughs for the time being. But yes, it's very difficult for people to, we're now two years in and the longer it goes out, of course, the greater and greater the price is, the greater and greater the stakes, again, because I always tie what's going on the battlefield with how much it's increasing the cost and the, the weight of debt that Ukraine will have to carry going forward. But also the harder and harder it gets to imagine sitting down at a table with these barbarians. And that's inevitable, but it also makes this more and more complex as we go along. That's why some of there's been some of this gazing back in time. I certainly do a lot of it trying to understand, wait a minute, what the heck happened in March, 2022? Because at least things being talked about were sort of game changing. They would have changed the game very much changed the configuration on the ground that we've gotten used to for so many years, which is just deadlock waiting for another spark. That's part of the reason why I think with increasing fervor, people are looking back because at that moment, even though an enormous amount of war crimes had already occurred by the time people were sitting across the table from each other in Istanbul, the Donbass was not completely in flames. A lot more water has gone under the bridge since then. That makes it harder and harder and harder now to imagine, even if at some moment you're actually getting to a sort of sobering of, wait a minute, what is the West really ready to help us with? You know, a major part of the American political landscape is ready to trade us for their domestic agenda related to migration and be distracted by other places in the world. And a serious player in Europe is ready to hold it up for their agenda. Hold on we may not receive the level we need for victory. I think there's a real chance to build up an arsenal of deterrence for Ukraine that prevents a Russian revanche breakthrough. And that might be part of negotiations because if negotiations ever brought down the intensity of fighting long enough for Western arms, at the levels that we're actually ready to give them to accumulate in an arsenal for Ukraine, they would be quite a remarkable arsenal. But that's different than here's enough to drive the barbarians out of your territory, liberate your relatives, and not have to confront sitting mm -hmm. down at the negotiations table with them. If Russia and Ukraine were to sit down at the table... There is an understanding that Ukraine might have to accept the fact that large part of its country, Southeast, will remain occupied for an indefinite time, right? As you were saying yourself just a moment ago. So what would that mean for Ukrainians and for the, for the Ukrainian leadership? I struggle to see a negotiation process that begins with accepting Russia's, what Russia has conquered as being legitimate. It becomes easier for me again, the closer you get to, let's say February, 2022, 2022, February 23rd, I guess. That becomes easier for me to conceptualize. Would that be easier for an exiled Crimean Tatar who's been waiting since 2014? I doubt it. So I really want to know what they think as well. I try to understand. Because right now to, to really accept that, it would get to what Sean has been saying. What were we fighting for? And it just gets to, I think, just an unbearable condition for Ukraine to know, for instance, that on a human level, huge swaths of territory with people who have done every single thing, every brave thing imaginable to demonstrate that they will not accept this patient that will somehow be legalized. I'm really thinking particularly of like, you know, the Kherson region, which has just been extraordinary. 
Of course, there are collaborators there. Of course, there are people who get along with the occupiers. But in its majority, Kherson left no ambiguity. And I think that's a bridge too far for Ukraine. Tactically, also, it's very hard for me to say this because I really love, for instance, the northern half of Luhansk Oblast. It's where I was living. It's a landscape and a cultural space that I have enormous feeling for. Tactically, for Ukraine, not having control of it right now is a lot less frightening than having lost the entirety of the Azov Sea coastline, which happened when Mariupol and places like Melitopol all the way to Kherson were occupied. Ukraine needs to also say, can we ever achieve a sustainable security condition for our country having such an important piece of our strategic landscape literally under occupation? Until Ukraine got these extraordinary Western arms, I would have also said Ukraine will just never be able to accept that at a strategic level having Crimea be occupied. One of the amazing things it's done is begin to neutralize the Russian military in Crimea. I never thought that would have been possible. Western arms make that possible. I think maybe they make it possible to imagine we may not regain control right now, but we no longer have this knife held to our belly because we have driven the Russian Black Sea fleet out of Crimea. That's amazing, actually. That maybe opens up some territory and a future negotiation. But, you know, the human cost won't always overlap perfectly well with that strategic cost for the country. So I don't see negotiations happening right now when Russia has not been thrashed into at least stepping back from that. There's out there a lot of Ukrainian sources saying that really one of the things that really closed the door was the Ukrainians gave a signal. Do not do this integration into the Russian Federation nonsense. Just say that you're holding these territories because for the time being, you need them to achieve your goals and the doors open a crack. And the ideological fever dream state of Russia right now meant that they slammed that door shut. So I think that probably has to be reopened with military progress by the Ukrainians. But for the people that say nothing until we're back to the 1991 line, that will take even more, I think, than the rhetoric has thus far been, been promising. I personally think probably the solution is somewhere with the absolute maximum of what's been occupied since 2022, return to Ukrainian control. It's my assessment that many Ukrainians could probably be reconciled to such a negotiated ending, but that gets harder and harder every day because of what they've yeah. seen the Russians do. I have to say, you, the picture you've painted really doesn't give Ukraine a lot of wiggle room in terms of openings. So you have Western partners who are great at talking about support, but unwilling or incapable of providing the support necessary for pushing the Russians back. There is not really a lot of wiggle room in terms of the amount of destruction and death that has occurred and the atrocities for people to swallow the possibility of some kind of negotiated settlement. And then, of course, the other side is that the Russians have to want to talk if there's going to be negotiations, and there's no indication that's going to happen anytime soon. And so putting a, a, aside the, the tragedy of the death and destruction, but the tragedy of Ukraine having this unprecedented support on the one hand, but at the same time, based on what you've just told us, I feel like at the same time, it's all alone. Yeah, I think you're capturing part of what's in the air right now. I won't be able to say if that's the buzz you'd feel on the street, because again, I'm usually not on the Ukrainian street, but I mean, I'm deep in the, in the social media and talking to people daily. Yes, I think you're capturing part of the problem, which is just the sensation that once we've reached this point, we don't have what it takes for the victory that morally belongs to us. We can put more and more of our own people in as a substitute. As I said, for instance, drones are a remarkable substitute both for human beings and for artillery, but you don't win a war with drones. You might, for instance, hold off an enemy for a time. We don't have the, um, what it takes to get the victory we morally deserve. And 
the space for a lousy piece now feels so toxic. You know, where are we? Are we locked into this? Partially that leads some people, I think, towards, well, then my, I guess we do just get another frozen conflict now much worse than what we had before. But if we can't go forward and there's a risk we tumble backwards, which I think people begin to feel when U.S. support dries up the way it has. Some countries have stepped in to try to fill that void, but when they begin to understand what it really means to have extremely competitive and deeply ideologically fractured politics in your, the country of your largest supporter and that you may become a negotiating chip eventually, almost inevitably. Yes, exactly. It's sort of this moment right now, like what is our paradigm? And I'm afraid that, you know, this might be an unearned, but an terribly rude awakening that resets people's expectations. And then I wonder if some will say, okay, well, again, what are the other scenarios? Do we need to freeze it, build up an arsenal? But again, are we building up an arsenal for what? To hold off Russian revanche or eventually to be ready to push them out? Uh, because it's still very, very, very hard for people to accept, especially that these new territories would be left under Russian control. Russia is not standing still. Russia is going out of its damn mind. I lived in Russia for many years. I simply did not think it would reach the state of deeply concentrated imperial psychosis. I just thought there were more breaks in their society than there are. They were masterfully dismantled over many years. It's one of the most extraordinary, I think, political acts we've ever seen that Russian society could be brought to this condition where they could tolerate and be on board with apparently such a fiasco of a war. And they are putting their economy on the rails of military Keynesianism, which is, you know, one more reason why Ukraine also needs to think about its economic model. That's not an easy foe to fight uh, with neoliberal economics. Russia is not holding still either. And unfortunately, will be building its arsenal of revenge. So yes, it's a terribly fraught moment for Ukraine, Sean, in which there is not really an easy answer. And, and on top of it, too, I see this in the press, the return of politics in Ukraine, where you're having more infighting, increasing infighting within the leadership, particularly between the president and the military commanders. And then this socially fraught issue around mobilizing 400,000 soldiers this year and the draft, the corruption and everything. How do you see this domestic politics that's reemerging out of the unity that we've been seeing over the last two years. How's that impacting things? I think the civilian military conflict narrative, while I'm absolutely not going to say, you know, has no validity at all, and I'm not the kind of insider that can speak to that. I think that's one of the sort of most socially media topics that it's been spun. It's been sort of flogged. I personally don't think that necessarily there's such a massive rift there. I think Ukraine has simply reached out a, a very, very difficult point when it had an enormous wave of volunteers. Many of them lost their lives. Some of them did their service and are back in their lives. Some of them are now deeply scarred and traumatized people trying to, to continue their service. That's a particular part of Ukrainian society. It's extraordinarily large and active. It's not bottomless. It's not endless. It's not a completely polarized society where everyone else is trying to figure out how to dodge the draft. I, for instance, know a significant number of my acquaintances who are men say, I am not going to dodge this draft. I haven't volunteered because my wife, for instance, said, until they call you, let's talk this through. I think, you know, I think we need to both be parents here, for instance, but I'm not going to run away from it. So there's many, many layers of Ukrainian society, but that incredible part that was these, these volunteers who are across the political ideological spectrum. I recently saw an acquaintance who was part of Ukraine's not extraordinarily large, but incredibly interesting socialist camp, uh, Maxim Kazakov died on the front. People I know who were hardcore nationalists dying on the front. It's across the spectrum, it's across Ukrainian society, but it was never going to be an endless pool of people. 
and now fighting this war when the government has to use coercion, right? As governments do, a draft is coercive, right? And finding the right balance when what you're fighting for is your model of society that is not the boot on your face. And you have an extremely good example of what that looks like nearby. And mobilization has been such a part of the toxic Russian model of waging war. It's not easy for Ukraine. It's not easy. And again, I don't exactly know what it's going to look like. I don't think it's going to be everything comes apart because nobody wants to fight anymore. But it will bring back a lot of political tension because there's very different ways. I think a lot of people imagine there's always going to be a a better model of mobilization. And when you say, well, would that model work on you? And they say, well, no, not exactly. I'd know how to get away from it. Then you understand why that's not necessarily going to be the model. It's going to be one that people like a lot less. No way for Ukraine to avoid that. It's going to get harder as it goes along. But I also don't see it as sort of a disaster, like the volunteers have run out. Now there will be no one to fight. I wanted to follow up on this. I wanted to follow up on this image that you guys painted of Ukraine standing all alone, despite the rhetoric coming from the West, despite the real support from European Union and the U.S. And so there are still talks about EU membership, even though the landscape has been changing over the past two years. So my question is, what would membership in the European Union mean for Ukraine today? And how popular is this idea among the Ukrainians? Is it still popular? Yeah, I mean, it's enormously popular. And I think it's becoming more and more, again, sort of a piece of narrative. And I don't mean narrative here that I mean, we often use that word in a certain way, right? like this sort of crazy thing people tell themselves or this weird spin. I mean, you need a narrative to get through an existential war and one that we will join the European community uh, where we've always belonged is a pretty natural one. What European Union membership actually means is a different question that I think we need to be rigorous about answering. A lot of Eastern European countries have entered the European Union. For some of them, it was an extraordinary launching pad to their global success, like Poland. Some of them had sort of cemented their natural place in Europe and their happy and natural success stories like Czechia. Some countries faced a demographic crisis when they entered the European Union. I'm living in one of them right now. It's not the only reason Latvia has a demographic crisis. They got an extraordinary bunch of benefits from joining the EU. It also did not solve their central difficult issues as a country that emerged from occupation, sort of oriented away from its natural economic connections for several generations. Latvia still struggles. Doesn't mean that they would say, oh, you know, the EU was a, was a fiasco for us. Not at all. But Ukraine has challenges, I would say, many times greater than what the most challenged Eastern European members of the EU came into. And there's always a risk that it's like, we'll get into the European Union and some switch will get flicked somewhere. Some things will happen. Funds that have been used to create extraordinary improvements in infrastructure across Eastern Europe will become available. And that's going to be super important. But for instance, what some of the stuff that I'm looking at is such an enormous topic, but you know, European Union is going through an amazing transformation right now of its idea of how a global economy, economic power like itself should operate towards a more climate, rational economic model. That's fantastic. This is part of what will be projected onto Ukraine through what's called the ACWIS, right? The sort of body of laws and regulations that a new member must integrate into their own system. Ukraine has the most energy intensive economic production in Europe as a continent and some of the highest in the world. It has the most energy intensive industry of anybody. That's a legacy, of course, the way things were built in the Soviet Union. There's been some progress on improving that of late, but Ukraine's very far away. The European Union is going to roll out a bunch of expectations that could either be transformational for Ukraine or if things went really badly, could, for instance, just sort of finish off metallurgy, you know, one of the main GDP producers, because Ukraine has big, dirty steel mills 
and the European Union wants to see green steel, right? And they're going to start making it hurt to produce dirty steel. Will the huge amounts of technical assistance and investment come through so that steel mills in Ukraine also get that modernization? Will that kind of funding be made available in time? Can Ukraine catch up when it was falling behind in things like in manufacturing before this war, the Russians had deliberately destroyed uh, with bombs and blockade major parts of the industrial economy. And now, yeah, by the way, as you enter the European Union, we're completely entering a new like technological era. Can we do all those things at the same time? We'd better get our will in place to accept what it's gonna cost to make Ukraine a functioning part of the European Union economy. Part of that cost, I think, could be carried by, for instance, letting Ukraine do some good old-fashioned industrial policy and protection of its own ravaged economy, which is not super popular. Of late, what industrial policy Ukraine was able to, to enact was opposed by the European Union based on their free trade agreements before this big war. Will we except how ravaged Ukraine's economy is and what that will mean for integrating into the European Union. And do we understand? And I think we have no choice anymore. It's not will we, we must, or it will be, for instance, one more push to the deindustrialization of a country of tens of millions of people that cannot keep them employed and at home without industry. So when we say things like, well, Ukraine will need to learn to play in this big European economic sandbox. Competition's what makes us great. We must keep the playing field level and not, for instance, have Ukraine giving preference to its own manufacturers during the reconstruction. I would say European companies might be playing on a playing field. Ukrainian ones are operating in a minefield, right? Quite literally, they are not trying to give themselves a leg up. If the government's not giving them a leg up, if it practices industrial policy, it's lifting them out of the crater to get them back onto the level playing field. Will we accept that and that those kinds of things will need to happen? That's a big question. We have to, but there's a lot of space to cover before. We... That was Brian Milikovsky. Brian Milikovsky has worked in forest conservation in Russia and Ukraine from 2009 to 2015, and then in economic recovery and international projects in Ukraine. He was based in Severodonetsk in eastern Ukraine, but moved to Latvia with his family after Russia's second invasion. He writes about socioeconomics of Ukraine for publications like Foreign Affairs, The Guardian, Open Democracy, and the Wilson Institute. Well, thank you, uh, Rusana. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rosanna Novikova. Well, I hope that you listeners found the conversation we had with Brian informative. I know I always do. And I should also say that this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper at PodCuts Editing. If you have any audio needs, you need somebody to give the professional touch to your audio projects, check out Daniel's services at podcutsediting.com. He does a great job, and if you contact him, he'll give you your first edit for free. And, of course, as you know, the Eurasian Non is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners just like you. I won't repeat what I said in the beginning to get you to become a patron. All I have to say is please do it. It helps out a lot and lets us know that you care about what we're doing here. So... Until next time, bye. Bye bye.